0: Well, dear congregation, I ask you to please turn now your very prayerful attention to that passage of Holy Scripture that I read to you in your hearing. We arrive in verse 24 of chapter 6 this morning. We've had already a few sermons in this chapter of God's Holy Word. It is a very big chapter. It's very extensive, so many things to consider in this portion of God's Word. Here in the Old Testament, the prophet Elisha is ministering, Elijah, the one who has gone before him, has gone up into heaven, and the Lord has received him, Israel, and is a very poor state spiritually now. The king really is, as we saw last week, what we could call a practical atheist. He had the scriptures, he had the prophet, but he wasn't really a saved man, he was an unregenerate man. All of God's people, of course, they are not perfect, but they do believe in the eternal God, that he does do wonders. And we read of a tremendous thing that the Lord did here for Israel in these dark days of apostasy. The Lord, of course, is bringing, as he promised in Deuteronomy, judgments upon the people of Israel if they forsook him. And the Lord is keeping this nation And has kept that little nation, Israel, even to this day. The Lord has sustained that nation. And the Lord is sustaining Israel here now, during these dark days. And uh, we remember from chapter 5, how even the Lord had brought the Syrians upon Israel and was giving success to Naaman, the captain of the Syrian army, by the hand of the Lord, And how the Lord even had mercy upon Naaman and yet sent Naaman back to Syria as a believer. How wonderful the Lord is. How merciful the Lord is. And here we see this city of Samaria. Now Samaria, the capital of Israel in the north, the ten tribes under siege. Under siege because Ben-Hadad, despite all that he has shown Remember how even the Lord healed, as I just mentioned a moment ago, his servant, or the general of the army, Naaman. And remember how in the beginning of this chapter, still Ben-Hadad, he wages war against Israel. And yet, despite the very fact that it is shown to Ben-Hadad that God had revealed the military intelligence of Syria his plans to try to defeat Israel, God had revealed it to Elisha. And time after time his plans were exposed. And even remember what happened in Second Kings, how the Syrian army came out against Elisha, surrounded the city of Dothan, and revealed to the servant of Elisha, that there was a multitude, a host of angels around them. And how, when the Syrian army came down to Dothan, the Lord blinded the eyes of the Syrian army and brought the Syrian army right into the heart of the city of Samaria. Subdued them. And even the king of Israel saw the entire Syrian army there. And they didn't know what to do. The king, wanting to smite that Syrian army, said to Elisha, Shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And Elisha, knowing the law of God, that if the enemy presented no enemy, no difficulty or no danger, they were to show mercy. And they were shown mercy. Bread and water were given to them. But they were led away back into their own land of Syria, shamed, weren't they? Shamed by what God had done. They could have slain them. And it was shown to Ben-Hadad that God will always be the victor over these things. God will always destroy his enemies. And my friends, the greatest fear a man should have is to be against the Lord God of Israel. To be against him, because no one can stand against the Almighty. The Lord says, is there anything too hard for me? I am the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And so God, by Elisha, was not only revealing the secrets of this wicked king Ben-Hadad, king of the Syrians, the secrets of his heart and the discussions that he was having with these military leaders in his bedchamber and sent him and his troops away absolutely shamed. And yet we read, astoundingly, that the same king rises up again. Can you believe it? The hardness of the human heart, that he rises up again against the people of Israel against Elisha, and against the God of all heaven and earth. It is amazing. Verse 24, and it came to pass after this, verse 24, that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. But look at the previous verse. We saw it last week. This is when Elisha sent People away, and the king prepared bread and water for the people. We read, and he prepared a great provision for them. That's the Syrian army. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. It's quite humbling, isn't it, when we see this. There are no more marauding squads. But then after a little while, this king begins to get brazen again. And they all come against Israel. They besieged or sieged Samaria. They surrounded the city. And the intent there is to try to starve the people of Samaria to death. Now, of course, sadly, even now, the people, many of them in Israel, had not repented of their sins. And God had warned, had he not, in Leviticus 23 and also in Deuteronomy 28, that if they forsook the living God, he will bring these great chastisements upon them. He will send foreign enemies against the people in the land. And that even now, as we read of of a horrific scene of two women here arguing over whose child to eat next, And this, as we will see from Holy Scripture, God had predicted would happen, that they would eat their own children. But God is yet merciful. God is very merciful, my friends, and we will see the mercy of God in this chapter. Well, it is amazing. What is going on in all of these chapters? We see the big picture, the bird's eye view here. What is God doing? Well, God is using a wicked king to afflict and punish another wicked, idolatrous king. He is using Ben Hadad to afflict here Jehoram. And so that even the nation might even know God's mercy. It's astounding how God works, friends. His ways are wondrous, his wisdom past our understanding. This story, my friends, demonstrates the inscrutable and unsearchable wisdom and power of Almighty God. We sang in that Psalm 46, the Lord reigns and the Lord governs all things. He brings wars to an end. He makes wars. That is because he lets men do what they really want to do in their own hearts. God never puts the evil disposition in a man's heart. But when God removes common restraints you just see what the human heart is capable of and that we will see. Never take your eyes off this. Never blame God for the wicked perpetrations of men in this world. God is never to blame for men's sins. And when you see wickedness in the world you need to remember this. Whenever there's peace God is the cause of the peace. Where there's wickedness It is simply God removing his common restraints from society. Two wicked kings here. A nation needs chastening because they're not listening to the prophets. And it's amazing here, God without compromising his own purity, he uses wicked people to bring about his holy purpose. Now, this is tremendous. I hope we see it this morning. It's a marvelous truth. It's such a comforting truth. God does it. He did it then. He can even do it now in the year 2023. Well, we need to divide the story here. I want us to consider various things. We see this awful scene now. King Jehoram, he walks upon the wall of Samaria, and he sees... You've got to imagine the picture... The Syrian army have sieged the city. They are lying. Of course, you would have big city walls like Jerusalem. The enemy, the Syrians are camped outside of Samaria and they are practically trying to starve the people to death. Not only was there, we read here, a famine. And there was a famine in in, uh, Samaria. But there was also now, and this is also part of God's chastening, of the nation. There is the enemy, which even God has allowed to come upon Samaria. And we see here, a donkey's head is sold for 80 shekels of silver. That's an extraordinary amount of money. Now, as we will see, the Jews weren't allowed to eat donkey's heads. We'll see there's a law in Scripture. And then, if that's not enough, imagine doves' droppings half an ounce sold for five months wages it's an unimaginable scene people are starving and this is all part of God's judgment you see God is by all of these things he's reminding the people that God hates sin and if the people we know from Scripture will repent of their sin and cry out to the Lord and confess this sin, God will have mercy. You're such a gracious God. So what is the Lord doing? We know this. God is bringing woe upon woe upon this nation as he promised to do in Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you just turn there with me now, Deuteronomy 28, verse 25. We read there, the Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and shall be removed unto all the kingdoms of the earth. That's eventually what happened to Israel that became dispersed in uh, 722 BC. That happened much later on. And many of them are suffering now under these marauding squads of the Syrians but if you look down at verse 45 moreover all these curses shall come upon thee and shall pursue thee and overtake thee till thou be destroyed because thou hearkenest not unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded thee and they shall be upon thee for a sign and for a wonder and upon thy seed forever because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. God brought them into this wonderful land, flowing with milk and honey. And for centuries, the Lord, even though they had sinned, if you were to read the book of Judges over a period of at least 400 years, time and time again, these people sinned. Not only did they worship false gods, and not only did they become ungodly like the people who followed after those gods, but friends, every time they repented, every time, God restored them back to these things. And God protected them and God overcame all of their enemies time and time again. It's the wonder of God, the merciful God. And you see, it's like a good parent. Let me say this, children. If you've got parents that correct you, thank God for them. Because a good parent cares for you, doesn't want you to go the wrong way. And this is what God is doing here. He's wanting to correct, chasten Israel, chasten the people here. And he's keeping this nation until eventually the Savior will come into this world. And even then, even when they forsook him, Paul writes in Romans 11, "Hath God forsaken Israel? He said, God forbid. He still hasn't. Now this blessing that came to the nation was a nationalistic blessing, as I was explaining to the young people yesterday. The blessings of Israel did not pertain to eternal life. It's not a covenant of grace. But you see, all the things that they had, they had the tabernacle, they had the law. The tabernacle was a teaching aid pointing sinners to Christ. The altar... The ark, where the cherubim looked over, where God said he would meet with sinners, where blood would be sprinkled upon that mercy seat. In that ark, what was in that ark? In that ark was the law. In that ark was Aaron's budding rod. In that ark was the manna. And all of those three objects speak of Christ. Did you know that? Paul says this. In Hebrews 10, he says, these things of the tabernacle were pictures of the true. Pictures of the true. They speak of something far more. Things good to come. Evidences of things to come. Christ said, I am the manna which has come from heaven. He is the law personified. He lived out the law perfectly. The only one. And he is that budding rod, as it were. Remember that budding rod of Aaron? It was the only rod, as it were, that budded and blossomed. And Christ, even though they put him to death, he lives. He ever lives. And he is that mercy seat. We're told by Paul in Hebrews that he has entered in to the heavenly tabernacle, that he has ascended up. And we're told he has passed through the veil into the heavenlies and presented his own blood. The Jews were given these oracles, these pictures of the true shadows of good things to come, says the Apostle Paul. And he was preserving this nation. And yet this nation, time and time again, had turned to their own way. But there was a remnant in the nation. And there still is. There are still some who will believe. And even Gentiles, God will call them. And there's coming a day when we will all see the Lord Jesus Christ. But here we have it. A wicked king, two wicked kings, Ben-Hadad. He rises up again, surrounds the city of Samaria. And in this city is an ungodly king of Israel. Now there were a number of ungodly kings. David was a godly king. David believed in the Savior to come. And what we see here happening to Samaria was almost unthinkable. Two women arguing over whose child they should eat next. One had promised, as we read, we'll eat my son, tonight we'll have your son, tomorrow. They are prepared to even eat their own flesh and blood. Well, this is predicted this is predicted, as we will see in Scripture, they would even eat their own flesh. They're becoming barbaric. It's terrible, isn't it? Well, we see the donkeys had here sold for an extraordinary amount of money. In Leviticus 11, we read what they were not to eat. Leviticus 11:3, Whatsoever parteth the hoof and is cloven-footed, and cheweth the cud among the beasts, that shall ye eat. Nevertheless, these shall ye not eat of them that chew the cud, nor of them that divide the hoof. As the camel, because he cheweth the cud, but divideth the hoof, he is unclean unto you. And of course, this, the, the ass would be amongst these animals here, that they are not to eat. It was for bad. But now the situation is so desperate, that they've dispensed with this law, and the city finds itself in such an extremity it still didn't excuse them. Now, you see in verse 26, the king is passing upon the wall, and there cried a woman, "Help my Lord, O king." And he said, "If the Lord do not help thee, whence shall I help thee? out of the barn floor, or out of the winepress?" And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son, that we may eat him today, and will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son, and did eat him. And I said unto her, On the next day, Give thy son, that we may eat him. And as she hath hid her son. So here again, the city, as I mentioned, is practically being starved to death by these enemies. And uh, this is what the Lord said in Leviticus 26. You may wish to turn there. Leviticus 26, 27. This is a stark warning. And the people ought to have heeded this way back. It didn't excuse what the people were doing here. I think the godly, truly, would not eat their children, they'd rather starve to death and die. Because it's forbidden, cannibalism is forbidden in Scripture. Clearly they're passing these laws here. Leviticus 26, 27. And if you will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me, then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins." And ye shall eat the flesh of your sons, and eat the flesh of your daughters shall ye eat. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your images, and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. Now, many people say, well, we blame God. Well, this is foolish. Stop and think. If that is your reasoning, friend, stop and think. Who is the cause of all the trouble here? Men. Men are surrounding the city of Samaria, aren't they? Men are to blame. This is barbarism, and we see it in the world right now. And God has warned the people furthermore. But a man still has a choice whether he eats his child or not. Still a choice, isn't it? Human choice. The point is this. When men depart from the living God... See how they behave. That's the simple lesson. You depart from the living God, you become like an animal. And that's how we see the world today. We see that with the unbelieving. We see that, you've only got to read Romans chapter 1. Men with men, woman with woman. Don't blame God on the state of the world. It's man's heart, my friends. It's the cause of all the the trouble in this world. When we read our Bibles, we better read them right. We better read everything in context. Don't ever blame God for the world's wickedness. By the way, this is not a pagan country here. This is Israel. But this was Israel that had Baal worship, and this is what it's now reduced to. And this is, by the way, not the last time mothers will eat their children. Because we we know later on, in AD 70, I mean, Flavius, Flavius Josephus tells us that men resorted to this just after the Lord Jesus Christ. He pronounced those words to Jerusalem again where he said, Woe, woe to them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how oft would I gather thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not, and the Lord pronounced these words, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And it was terrible. The Romans surrounded the city in AD 70. And the people resorted to this barbarism and cannibalism again. That's the human heart for you. Let us never blame God. Without God, my friends, we become animals. This is a warning. When God withdraws certain things, we really see how wicked the human heart is. So, notice here, Jeroboam, or Jeroboam, Jehoram, should we say, he tears his clothes. Really, it's an expression of horror. He's grieved at all that he sees here. And uh, we notice verse 30, And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the woman, that he rent his clothes, and he passed by upon the wall. And the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth within Upon his flesh, underneath his kingly garments, he was wearing sackcloth. He was concealing his supposed repentance, concealing it. He ought to have, like the king of Nineveh, repented in sackcloth and ashes. He should have been an example to the people, but he wasn't. Proud. The wicked king here becomes enraged at the desperate state of things, and in a temper, he tears his garment, exposes that underneath he has this sort of pretense. It is a pretense. In pride, he was hiding his alleged repentance, which ought to have been genuine and public, but it was not. Is not an example to the people. Instead of repenting, like Ahab, he blames Elisha. What we have here, notice, really it's penance. And the Catholics even do this. They have something called a chalice that they put underneath their clothes. And they maybe even think that, oh well, God will, God will see this. It's good enough. There's no humility here. You see, sackcloth was meant to be an outward sign of the humbling of the soul of the one that had sinned. They had all sinned, and particularly this king. So underneath, he's concealing his guilt. Underneath, he's concealing his sin. There was no giving up of his royal dignity. Nothing of that. No shame in this man. If you just turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 5, we see how very different it was there. Remember when Jonah was commanded to go out and preach, God would destroy after 40 days. Jonah 3, 5, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. That's all of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid, notice, his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and in ashes. Now if a Gentile king could do that, why couldn't this king? Because he's not saved. Because he's an unregenerate man. Because he's full of hypocrisy. And he thinks that he can fool God. But nobody can fool God, my friends. Nobody. And furthermore, you notice he's bitter toward Elisha. This, so it proves there's no real repentance there anyway. Verse 31. Then he said, God do so. And more also to me, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. In other words, if Elisha's head still on his body, God do the same to me. If I don't put an end to that prophet, does he sound like a man who's really repenting? Done to me. Now, no doubt, Elisha had called for true, open repentance. This man should have confessed before the whole nation that he was an ungodly king and he wasn't really trusting the Lord and sorry for the state of the nation. But as far as this king was concerned, he had repented. And as far as he's concerned, it's not working. I've put on sackcloth. It's not working. And, and that's the attitude of so many. They do some outward thing, and they think God is pleased with that. But that's not repentance. And he's not calling anybody to repent either. He sees the awful scene of the, the, these women. They're arguing over the fact that this, this one woman won't now eat her child. They shared their child, her child before, now the other won't. And he's disgusted and he's really, he's blaming God. And he's blaming Elisha. I've done this business that you said, Elisha, and nothing's happened. The situation hasn't turned. It's terrible. But Elisha sat in his house, verse 32, and the elders sat with him. And the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger came to him and he said to the elders, see Ye how the son of a murderer has sent to take away mine head. God had told Elisha that this man is, is coming toward him. You see how the Lord protects his servants, gives him information? And we see that this servant, he, he just heads back and it's revealed. As soon as he opens the door, he tells the messenger, I, I know why you've come. I know the reason. It reminds me of that time when the soldiers went to go and arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. And they came to him. And the guards return to the authorities. And and, and they say, well, where is he? You you, you were sent to, to arrest him. He said, no man ever spake like this man. And here he is now. Perhaps this messenger convicted in his own mind, that this is all wrong. Perhaps he had second thoughts. His conscience troubled him so much, that surely he must have shuddered at the very fact that Elisha knew. Is it possible just to have that curtain close us a little bit? Well, you notice, and this is often the case, you think of this king here, going back to Jehoram. He's thinking this, this plan of yours, Elisha, well, it's a waste of time. You said, repent, I've repented. God hasn't taken any notice, but of course he hasn't repented. And there's so many people, I think they think they've repented, but they really haven't. Life doesn't show it. It's not in the life. It's not genuine repentance. If you turn to Micah 7 verse 9, here's a solemn word. Micah 7, nine. This is the difference between somebody that truly does repent and that is suffering under the chastening of God and yet is prepared to bear the indignation of God. Micah 7.9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he plead my cause and execute judgment or deliverance for me, he will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. See what we read there? I will bear the indignation. What does that mean? It means whatever the Lord's going to chasten me with, I will wait. I will wait on the Lord. I, I, you know, maybe my repenting isn't sincere enough. Maybe that's how God is having to deal with some people. It's not sincere enough. In fact, he's saying, this king is saying, Elijah well, is really a liar. Yes, yes, I, I understand. Notice, he says, yes, this is of the Lord. This is what this king says. I know it's of the Lord, as we will see. But really, although he says it's of the Lord... I've had enough. Look at verse 33. And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him, and he, that is Jehoram, said, what does Jehoram say? Behold, this evil is of the Lord. He acknowledges it is of God. God has sent it. What? Should I wait for the Lord any longer? It sounds to me, this is double talk. There are people that will say, I know the Lord's chastening me. But should I continue to wait for the Lord? My friends, that's practical atheism again. If you know it's of the Lord, nothing's changed. You better continue to wait. And do, as Micah says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. You see, some people just want a quick fix. Fix my life. Sort this out, God, in my life. Sort out my problems. But there's no humility. There's no repentance. My friends, that is empty. And God sees right through it right through it. It's amazing how wicked the human art is. Something else, I want you to see the Lord's deliverance of Israel that is completely undeserved. First of all, God has to deal with this wicked king, and he's going to deal with him. Because God is going to turn things around completely for this city. Food is at an extortionate price. Nobody can afford anything. But God will turn it round in a way that nobody would have imagined. Look at verse 1. And bear in mind here, food, nobody can afford it. A whole month's wages for a bit of dove's dung. I mean who would eat that but notice then elisha said hear the word of the lord chapter 7 verse 1 thus saith the lord look look at the text tomorrow about this time shall a measure of notice fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of samaria Now, stop and notice just a couple of things there. In 24 hours, fine flour. You think, it's not going to be even time to grow wheat. Where's the wheat going to come? And who's going to grind it? And this is the finest of flour, not just ordinary flour, but the finest of flour. Be sold for a shekel, rock-bottom price. That's the word of the Lord. It's utterly remarkable, this prophecy. Because there's no time for crops to be grown or anything. But you notice, secondly, prophecy disbelieved. We read here, Then a Lord, on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven... Might this thing be? Could it really even if God could open heaven? Might this thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. You're going to see it, but you won't eat it. Why? Because God's judgment is coming on you. You're going to see it. you see all these people eat the finest of flour, but you're not going to partake in it. You see what the servant says, and even what the king agrees to? In fact, you'll see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat thereof. It's an amazing deliverance, isn't it? Look at verse 3. And, there were, and how God does it? By the most unlikely people. Leprous men. Who, by the way, were outside the city. Outside the city of Samaria. That was the Jewish law. And uh, they desperate. I mean, there's a famine throughout the land now, not just in the city, but all around. So, what is their hope? Well, look at verse four. Sorry, verse three. And there were four lepers, leprous men, at the entering in of the gate. And they said one to another, "Why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. They're saying we've got nothing to lose." So they, what do they do? They rose up, verse 5, in the twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. So a little way outside. And when they were come to the outermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. And what's the explanation for that? Well, we're told in verse 6 and following that God did something amazing. And behold, thirdly here, the intricacies of God's promise. Not only would he do this, but how he works it out. Flour didn't fall from heaven, but it came from a most unlikely source, from the Syrians. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots, and so on. And uh, you notice, they all run away, because they think that Israel has hired some foreign nation, and that hasn't taken place. Israel didn't even need to go to another nation for help. And what does God do? These Syrians, they run for their lives. They run to the hills. They run. They hide. And these leprous men, they go into the camp and they find not only food, but gold and silver and everything else. And it's self-indulgence. And they realize their conscience gets the better of them. This is a day of glad tidings. How can we keep these things to ourselves? And they decide to go and tell the people of Samaria and the king. And what happens then? Well, they come after these things and the prophecy is fulfilled. All the flower is there. And the Syrians are gone. It's amazing, isn't it? God's word fulfilled. Verse 16 and onward. And The people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Now notice this king doesn't believe it. And he goes out and he gets trampled at the gate. He sees it with his eyes but he doesn't get to taste of it. And my friends, that is a reminder of those who scoff at God's Word. I'm amazed my years of being a Christian. How many people say they're Christians and they scrutinize God's Word and they half believe. So the problem is, if, if, if you really believe the Lord, you'll search his word. And, and you'll try his word. You, you, never, you never tempt God. It's a sin, my friends, to tempt God. I believe God is the God of the impossible. I believe God sent his son. That's the only way he could save this wretch of a sinner. To live for me. And die for me. That that is the unspeakably wonderful. There's no other way. All other religions, let me say, are proud. Because it's man earning his way up to God, which he could never do. But God did the unspeakable. He gave his son. For crimes that I had done. And for all of his people. That's my only hope. And really, it's... She may say, we know faith is the gift of God, but it's pride to believe that there is any other possible way to be saved than God's way. It's pride. It's sheer pride. And it's sheer arrogance to think that you or I as a sinner could go to heaven on account of who we are by nature. Because we're no better than these two women arguing over Which child to eat. That's what we would be reduced to apart from God's grace. The sins, all the sins of the world are in my heart. That latent sin is there. And left to myself, goodness knows where I would be today. Goodness knows where I would be today. And I don't say that lightly. And if by God's grace you become a Christian, I think you'll eventually come to see that too. Apart from God, you would say with Paul, O wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of death? This body of sin. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, who gave his unspeakable gift, so undeserved to this people. From an ass's head to dove's dung, to the finest of flour in 24 hours my friend God could have done it in a millisecond it's like he created the world Jesus Christ is the bread of life he is that finest of all flour and bread he is that which the soul needs it's a warning too to those who scoff at God's word. Look at Isaiah 65 13. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God Behold, my servants shall eat, but ye shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but ye shall be thirsty. I'm thinking here of this king who scoffed at God's word, who had a sham. Repentance, behold, my servants shall rejoice, but ye shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but ye shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. Isaiah there is pointing to judgment and eternal perdition in hell. Many will sing, while others will weep forever and ever. I close with just a few points. My friends, repentance is not a work that merits favor with God. Let me say this. Repentance is not a work that merits favor with God, but it is a turning from sin and pride and is dependent solely on the mercy of God that is in Jesus Christ. That's it. Repentance is not something you, that merits anything with God. It's simply acknowledging that you have sinned against Almighty God, and the only hope is Jesus Christ. It's not a repentance is not a substitute for righteousness. It's not righteousness. It is the right thing to do. Christ's righteousness is the only merit. It's the only merit. Yes, repentance is a good thing. And even that he gives. But the only true merit that we can have with God is the merit of his son. It's the only hope for the sinner. The Bible speaks nothing of penance. Penance is works. I do some pain and God acknowledges somehow some merit in me. My friends, it was the only, the only pain is that which Christ endured. His soul was made an offering for sin. That the Father is pleased with. Secondly, the Bible is very clear on this. The best of news is never believed by the unregenerate. Think of this wicked king. The best of news is not believed by the unregenerate. Why? Why? Because men often judge God by their own wicked hearts and their own standards. When you see your sin for what it really is, you see what you really deserve. Trouble is, men think they deserve so much. You deserve nothing. Psalm 50, we're told, These things, says the Lord, hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such as one as thyself. God is very different to us. My ways are not your ways. Or your ways are not my ways, either way. My thoughts are not yours. Jehoram. I was thinking this could never be. I've tried all I can. But he half tried, didn't he? Half repentance. People try to look and use outward signs, but God looks in the heart, my friend. And he knows the heart. And it's only them that have been made, as it were, fools in this world's eyes. As they believe upon the Lord. The Bible tells us that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish. But my friends, that's the only hope. God the Son dying on the cross for his people. That's it. It's the power of God. Look at the men perishing in the wilderness. Moses, you put a a serpent, make a brazen serpent. Look and live. Whoever looks to Christ shall live. Look in faith. Look away from yourself. Look on him who God made to be sin for his people as he bore their sin. We're told by the Apostle Paul, God hath chosen those things that are despised. The only reason men believe is that they are chosen of God. That's it. And who are they? Very often, my friends, the most unlikely people you might think. And they, they know that. Why would God ever choose me? When somebody says, I know why God chose me, you know God didn't choose him. Because he thinks there's some good in him. There's no good in us. Left to ourselves, we're monsters of iniquity. But by God's grace, we're saved. Amen.